Good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're glad to have you with us this morning. Um, we're going to get started with some worship. Uh, we can, we're going to um, lift our hands and voices. And if you're able, uh, would you stand with us and let's sing to God. Go tell it on the mountain The one that we've been waiting for The king of our salvation Born on this day our Savior Christ the Lord Go tell it on the
Jesus, Jesus, oh, what a wonderful child, Jesus, Jesus, so lowly, meek and mild, new life, new hope, new joy he brings, listen to the angels sing, glory, glory, glory. church. Would you pray with me? Good morning, Father. Thank you for who you are, sovereign over all. Let us praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all the angels. Praise him, all the heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you vapors above the clouds. Praise him who wraps himself in light and set the earth on its foundations. Let every created being give praise to the Lord. In the beginning, you created light and saw that it was good. But we so often allow the darkness to creep into our hearts. Oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom every sinner's heart to draw us close, to walk in step with you. Forgive us our transgressions. We look away from the hurting and the marginalized when we fail to make a stand against hate and atrocities because we are afraid of offending, when we fail to take the time to care for someone because it's inconvenient, 
Father, forgive us when we murder others with our words, when we stand in your place and judge the behavior of others without recognizing our own failures. Father, you caused the light to shine out of darkness and made his light shine in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of your glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Your Son, our Savior, fully God, fully man, the great I Am, delivered in our world as a baby, utterly divine, yet completely human. He came to show us pure love, perfect peace, and an everlasting hope. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Lord, help us not miss out on any opportunity to accept your perfect gift. There is so much brokenness and pain in this world, it is hard for the human mind to comprehend. But you are able and willing to hear and respond to our prayers. We pray that our leaders would know, your, know you and seek your wisdom. We pray for our family and friends to be healed of disease and illness. We pray for our children to know you and flourish in the abundance of your love. We pray for your mercy and justice to reign in a chaotic world. Father, we meet may we seek to be an instrument of your love. Thank you for Pastor Steve's message. Thank you for his servant heart at La Jolla Community Church. Thank you, Father, for all those that have served in seen and unseen ways through the life and ministry of this church. Father, my prayer is that we would all seek your guidance and wisdom as we move forward into a new chapter and allow the Holy Spirit to direct our thoughts, actions, and words. Jesus, you are the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In Jesus' name we pray. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we're so glad that you're here. If you're looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out a connect card so we can get to know you. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out a prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. Join us on Christmas Eve as we celebrate the humble and magnificent birth of Jesus. The candlelight service will take place on Sunday, December 24th at 4.30 p.m. Enjoy treats before and after the service, hear a message from Pastor Steve, and worship the Lord with Christmas songs. We hope to see you there. As you may have already heard, amazing things are happening here at LJCC. As of January 1st, 2024, Grace City will become responsible for the management and leadership of this campus and preschool. As LJCC comes to a close, we are hopeful for what God is going to do here as we pass the baton to Grace City. For more information regarding this campus transfer, please scan the QR code or visit our website at ljcc.org. Well, good morning. I want to invite Isaiah, Solomon, Monica, Francisco, all of you, to come up right now. <laughs> come on up. We're going to baptize Isaiah. Isaiah is a freshman at Notre Dame on an ROTC scholarship. Uh, did they teach you how to salute yet? <laughs> no, no pop quizzes here. Not a problem. Uh, well, Isaiah, I've known you since before you were born. 
And you're a lot taller now. I got to tell you that right now. Uh, and what a joy that you want to be baptized uh, and uh, that your family can be here, your grandparents, your mom, who was the first employee of La Jolla Community Church, who still goes by the moniker number one and reminds me that I am number two. What a joy, what a joy to surround you today as you confess your faith in Christ. And so let me ask you some questions. Just some simple ones like, first of all, what's the meaning of life? No. Um, do, you, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I do. Do you trust in Him alone for salvation? I do. And is it your desire to be His disciple, to show His love, to grow in His Word, and to serve Him with the gifts He's put into your hands and heart and mind? It is. So, what does this mean to you? What does it mean for you to be baptized today? This is the uh, public and outward proclamation of my inner acceptance of the Christian faith as my own. That's all I got. That's, that's a phenomenal summary, you know. Um, oh, wow, that's pretty good. That's better than pretty good. Uh, that's a heartfelt confession of faith. Uh, we, we believe in uh, confessor's baptism. Now, you know, I've heard people say, well, I don't know if I believe in baptism of babies because they can't confess their faith. But really, when you talk about, um, I mean, they can't, you know, they're not believers. We, we don't really support believer's baptism, if you think about it. Because to say, I believe enough to be baptized is a bit arrogant. What we do is we confess our faith. We say what you just said, that apart from God's grace, we can do nothing. That, that salvation is a gift that we can't earn, we don't deserve. But because God loves us, he wants us to experience uh, the life he created for us as his beloved sons and daughters. And so he's reclaiming the world, he's restoring the world. And so in this confession of faith, it's an act of humility, it's not a trophy moment. It's we're saying, I'm willing to die to me uh, to be raised again in him. And in so dying and, and living, we come alive really for the first time. And so what I love about what you're doing is that you are not only here to confess your faith and to be baptized, to confirm it publicly, but you are now a, really a free agent in the kingdom of God. You've been that. You are more than just an ROT student at Notre Dame. You are a missionary in the name of Jesus at Notre Dame, in the military, in whatever career you choose. So you're a man on a mission, and your mission will include maybe things like marriage and family and, and a career, but your mission will define all those, and all those will be uh, supportive of your mission. And so we are absolutely thrilled to stand with you today uh, to tell you that we uh, confirm your confession of faith. It's authentic, it's real, it's heartfelt. And uh, wow, I wish we could have more conversations. Uh, Isaiah and I have had many conversations over the years. Uh, sitting in our backyard having cups of tea. And uh, it's good for every parent to have somebody who can not still answer the questions that the kid's asking, but can at least go, well, that's an interesting question. Tell me more about that question, Isaiah. So we had these great questions about the big things of life. And so it's been really wonderful. It's been a great gift to watch you grow in your knowledge and love of God. You've, you've, you've come out of an incredibly loving family who has shaped your faith. You've had a lot of great role models in terms of people who have demonstrated what the faith looks like to you. And now you're, you're not going off on your own. You're, you're in that community. You're going into this next season of your life, and you'll have that community with you forever. In fact, it's eternal. Nothing and no one can separate you from the love of, 
of God that's in Jesus Christ, and you get to have, be part of this fellowship, this, this family of God now and forever. So with that, um, I would baptize you if I had some water. Uh, let's see here. That's a detail. Um, and here we go. <clears throat> Drake, thank you. You are a hero. Thank you very much. We were going to use water from the Jordan River, but the Environmental, environmental Protection Agency say, said it's so dangerous we wouldn't want to do that to you. So we're using beautiful San Diego water. Isaiah, Solomon, Manakea, Francisco, child of God, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we pray for this young man. We thank you again uh, for the family that birthed him and has raised him to know you and love you. We thank you for all those people you brought into his life, grandparents, aunts and uncles, friends, mentors, coaches, teachers, uh, youth pastors, uh, pastors of every stripe. You've brought other mentors and friends to encourage him, to challenge him, to comfort him, to confront him. And so now, Lord, we thank you that he stands here uh, confessing his faith, publicly, personally, in a way that not only uh, allows us to understand his heart, his mind, his strength, but to understand that this is what you want for each one of us. So confirm uh, that, that confession in all of us who have been baptized. Prompt those folks who have not yet been baptized, who are still processing, do they believe in you or not, to realize that this is the greatest gift that they can receive and the greatest gift that anybody can give them. So, Lord, we pray that through Isaiah, uh, many would come to know you, would grow strong in faith, would be willing to serve you, even as he uh, endeavors to serve you. We thank you and praise you for him. And we pray all this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Okay. Great, thank you for the holy water. Would you turn to the person next to you and just say, tell them in, in 10 seconds, what is your favorite Christmas tradition? Would you just tell the people sitting next to you on either side what your favorite Christmas tradition is? Alrighty. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> uh, one of the one of the most wonderful historic uh, traditions of Christmas. I hope I hope you had a chance to hear somebody's and tell yours. So many great traditions of Christmas. I wish we really had the time to unpack this because um, <clears throat> it is so fun to see what people do to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, years ago. Uh, we were blessed to be part of establishing a ministry in Malawi. And now it's kind of gone crazy. Amazing to see what's happened there. Uh, Kepa and I uh, were, <laughs> were in Malawi together. Uh, Kara and, and uh, got to see the beginning of this ministry to, where they're reaching literally millions of people. It's ph phenomenal. It's just humbling. And it's all them. We've been just great partners from afar to cheer them on. But one time, one of the leaders, um, uh, Vasco Kachipapa, he was in charge of, of reaching literally over a million people. And he's ha having a cup of tea at our house. And before he leaves, he said, hey, it was Christmas time. He said, could we get a picture in front of the tree? 
And I said, sure. And as we're walking over the tree, I thought, oh my gosh, he's punking me in front of everybody in Malawi. I said, Vasco, you want to show them how crazy Americans take a tree, put it in a house, a tree that doesn't grow in Malawi, they've never seen before, put it in a house, festoon it with all this debris, and they consider that Christmas. He starts laughing, he goes, yes, yes, that's what I want to tell them. I want to show them and prove it. They won't believe me unless I show them the picture. And I said, you know, it's fun to think of what, these, what this tradition represents. And so we talked a little bit about the tradition. He goes, yeah, he, I, I understand. I, I really appreciate it. But we don't do anything like that in Malawi. <laughs> they have it so dialed down. They just worship Jesus. I don't understand the people. But um, all these traditions are ways we worship and express our worship in Jesus. And one of the greatest ones is gift giving. Gift giving. And the You'd, you'd think that um, that would be a natural thing. People give gifts. Often, though, people give gifts to get something. World leaders give one another gifts to impress one another or to make a point. And, you know. But, but the, the person who we, we model gift-giving after uh, was a real person. Uh, Nicholas, the bishop of Myra in modern-day Turkey, lived in the 4th century died 343. His birthday was December 6th. And so he became that person who was kind of the epitome of what it meant to be a worshiper of Jesus and to acknowledge that through generous giving. And so he was known for, as the bishop, making sure in a very low-key way, not drawing, not drawing attention to himself, making sure needs were being met in the community. And on one occasion, he overheard a man lamenting the fact that he did not have enough money for a dowry for his daughter to be married. And so uh, the story goes that Nicholas took a small bag of gold and then dropped it down the chimney of the small cottage where the family lived. And that's how we get this notion of Santa Claus, Saint Nicholas, right, uh, giving these gifts. Uh, and it sort of transitioned into somehow we got from St. Nicholas of Myra to Elf. I don't know how we got to Will Ferrell from Nicholas, but that's where it goes. <clears throat> Think of your first moment seeing Santa. Were you freaked out? Were you a little bit nervous? Or were you, you know, excited? Uh, this week, a friend of mine um, who's been teaching a, a, a class um, up at San Quentin, uh, it's a writing class, but really it's a think about your life class and what are you going to do if and when you ever get out of here. And if you never get out of here, what are you going to do with your life? And it's been a profound experience for everybody over, over the last year. Once a month he comes up. And so he got permission, first time ever apparently, to, to dress as Santa at San Quentin. And he thought, well, I'm flying up to the Bay Area. I better put the car. I can't change in the prison, so I'll, I'll change at the airport. He was so unprepared for the effect. He's a big dude. And as he walks out of the men's bathroom, all of a sudden, it's like a mob of children <laughs> are now coming toward him, like mice to cheese. There are all these kids, and he's like, I'm being swarmed by kids. What is, go what is going on? He realizes, oh my gosh, I'm dressed like Santa. He had the beard pulled up to here. Somebody goes, hey, Stan, you got to pull the, oh yeah, he pulls the beard down. He adjusts his beard. All these kids, so he, he said, I said, what did you do? He said, well, I had to just go into full Santa mode. Well, hi, what's your name? My name is Bobby. Bobby, have you been a good boy this year? 
Yes, I have. Well, what would you like for Christmas, Bob? You know, so he has all these conversations. He's trying to wade through the kids. Oh, my gosh. And then so what happens? He shows up in San Quentin, and he may as well have been in the airport with all the kids. All these hardened guys are going, Santa, Santa. I said, what was that like? Because it was a little awkward when I had to start off by saying, you've all been naughty. (laughs) (laughs) But I've got a really good message for you. A really, really good message for you. Somebody said it this way. um, If you see a fat man who's jolly and cute, wearing a beard and a red flannel suit, and if he's chuckling and laughing away while flying around in a miniature sleigh, with eight tiny reindeer to pull him along, then let's face it, your eggnog is too strong. <laughs> uh, so we hold on to Santa, and it's a wonderful tradition, uh, but really we, we don't want to forget where it comes from. <clears throat> uh, Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, 4th century, who's uh, actually his, not his birthday, his death, he died on December 6th. So we, we celebrate, memorialize him on, uh, in, in, at Christmas time. But really, the story goes further back than that, right? This, this tradition of giving gifts doesn't come just from him. He got it from another source. Thank God for people like him that give us gifts that delight us, that surprise us, make life better. But here's where the tradition comes from, Matthew 2, 1 to 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Who were these magi? Who were these wise men, we call them? Well, magi is a Greek word describing people from Babylon who were astronomers slash astrologers. Not astrologers in the way that we think about astrology, but truly trying to be astronomers and then saying, what things does the, does the sky tell us about seasons, about crops, about all kinds of things? And how did the Greeks end up getting there? Well, uh, and how did the Magi have a relationship with the people in Israel? Well, because the people in Israel were in captivity in Babylon. They knew all about these wise men. And the Greeks, of course, swept through the, the world, the ancient world, replaced by the Romans. So everybody spoke Greek. And so these Greek words about faraway places were pretty normal. And these wise men came from the east. What is to the east of Israel? Well, Arabia. And Arabia is the source of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, and there's a tribe of Bedouins uh, uh, to the east called the Kokobani. The Kokobani are these people who study the stars. So this really comes out of history. It really comes out of actual facts. And so um, these magi observed unusual planetary movement, and they interpreted it as significant. Somehow they had enough content about what was going on in Israel to put two and two together. It appears that heaven bows down low at the birth of Jesus, and the magi take notice. Now... It fulfilled, this is, you won't hear, this is not a normal Christmas passage, but it, it fulfills Numbers 24-7. Numbers is the story of Israel post-exile, uh, post-exodus. They're, they're moving out of Egypt, and now they're into this journey that takes them, uh, which should have taken them weeks, takes them 40 years. 
because of their disobedience and hardness of heart. And along the way, uh, they have all these you know, confrontations with other tribes saying, hey, what are you doing here? You can't be here. And in one of these confrontations, a prophet, not an Israeli, but a prophet speaking to the kings of Israel and the kings of these oppressing people, his name is Balaam. He's famous for his donkey. And Balaam gives this prophecy about the moment, what's going on with Israel and all these kings arrayed against them. But it was this prophecy that the early church identified as, oh my, look, this is right along with what Isaiah was saying. You, a child, is born. This is, this is what uh, we see in, in, in Genesis 49 when Jacob is blessing his sons and he says of Judah, Judah, everybody will bend their knee to you and there will come one who eventually will receive the scepter to whom it really belongs. So you see all these fragments of prophecy coming together. And so Genesis, uh, in Numbers 24, 17 says this, I see him, but not now. This is Balaam speaking. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. This is fascinating, isn't it? You see the way that God builds these progressive prophetic words from Jacob uh, through Moses writing in Numbers. Uh, we see it in Isaiah. We see it in, in Micah. And, and here it is. And so the Magi's had signs from the skies, stars shine, but it's the word of God that illuminates. And so it's the word of God that anchors us and focuses us on what the meaning of this is. The stars are inspiring, but the word of God is clarifying. It takes our inspiration and moves it into something that's more concrete, more rooted in the person of God, in the authority of God, in the will and the word of God. So they show up, uh, and it's, a, it's an awkward question that they're asking everybody in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at this point is a powder keg. Why? Well, because it's dominated by the Romans, and the Romans have put in a pseudo-Jewish king, half-Jewish, from, uh, from, again, from the eastern side of, of uh, what we call Israel-Palestine. Uh, the Idumean people, a king of Idumea, marries, uh, uh, takes a, a Jewish woman as a wife. They have a son, Herod. Herod is now designated by Rome to be the king in place. He's called the king of the Jews, but the Jews don't buy it. And the Romans kind of nod and wink about it. Yeah, whatever, king of the Jews, congratulations. But Herod is an incredibly powerful leader, as you know. He built so many things. If you take a trip to Israel, if you have, you've seen any number of amazing, to this day, jaw-dropping things that he architected, he built, he designed, with indoor plumbing, running water, fortresses like Masada, other fortresses that he built, amazing palaces that he built. He rebuilt the temple. Stunning. He was powerful and he was vicious. He's at the end of his life and he's freaked out that somebody's going to try to usurp his power. It was said by the Syrian king, better to be a pig in Herod's household than one of his children. Because as a half-Jew, he wouldn't eat pork, but he slaughtered his children. Any child that looked like that child could become um, the king, a son, a stepson, a, a nephew, whomever, he would, he would destroy them. So he was a vicious uh, dictator of dictators. Incredibly smart, incredibly powerful, did a lot of positive stuff, but at a, at a very high cost to a lot of people. 
So this is the context. Now these magi show up saying, hey, uh, we came to see the king of the Jews. This is a very awkward question. Where is the king of the Jews? And Herod has spies everywhere. Everybody's a spy because they're all, again, under oppression and freaked out. Meanwhile, there's groups called zealots, Pharisees, Sadducees, revolutionary people. You have all these people who are at, at cross purposes with one another and with collectively Herod and Rome. And so it's really, uh, I mean, it's just a, a, a place ready for one spark. And so Herod is always monitoring what's going on, and he hears about this. He says, hey, bring them in. I'd love to talk to them. I'm looking for the king of the Jews, as if they don't know I am the king of the Jews. So when Herod heard this, he was disturbed, uh, which is a redundancy. He was already disturbed. He was a disturbed and disturbing human being. And all Jerusalem with him. They were, again, freaking out. What's going to happen? These guys don't know what they're walking into. People who walk into meetings with Herod don't usually walk out. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, this is an awkward question in and of itself, because it's like, why have you not been telling me these things? Well, you never asked. And so they give him the answer. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, all these prophecies funneling down to this point in time, a flexion point. So King Herod, where is the real king that we've come to see? So Herod knew the question was judgment. Where, where Jesus is the good shepherd, Herod is the ravaging wolf, insatiable in his hunger and thirst for power. Not long after this, he was so concerned that nobody would care when he died. He had several hundred of the leading men of Jerusalem sequestered in a stadium because he knew death was coming soon. And he said, when I die, all of them shall be slaughtered so that people will be crying all over Israel. And of course, when he died, they released all these men. That's how bad it was. So it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Clever, wise, hence the wise men. They, they, they navigated wisely a situation that was deadly. But you can imagine how that left things. Herod is incensed. I still don't know who this kid is. And those blankety-blank magi escaped. 
So when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Is there anything more vicious than that? Uh, you know this from art. If you take an art history, if you've gone to any of the great museums, uh, the slaughter of the innocents is what it's called. The slaughter of the innocents. And there's always pictures of mothers holding desperately onto their child, men being restrained. Uh, it's just, it's just mind-boggling to imagine, except that we've been watching the news and we know what it looks like when people come in and ravage families with no regard to who's seeing what. Now, this parallels Exodus uh, chapter 2. Again, when you read the Bible, this is why we say you've got to read the whole Bible. Uh, read Jesus' Bible. That, simplify it. Just read Jesus' Bible, which is the Old Testament. Three parts, uh, the Torah, the law, uh, the Nevi'im, the prophets, a big chunk of it is prophetic, and the Ketuvim, that's all the writings, the collected writings, Psalms, Proverbs, the wisdom things. So take those and make an acronym out of it. Torah, Nevi'im, um, Ketuvim, Tanakh. T-N-K, T-N-K, and then just add some syllables. Tanakh. That was Jesus' Bible. <clears throat> anytime he quoted scripture, anytime the disciples, the apostles quoted scripture, it was from the Tanakh in the context of the gospel. And that's why you see, when you read the gospel, you see all these kind of odds and ends references to, and that's why the prophet said, you're going, oh, okay, and you skip over it. It's sort of esoteric. You go, I don't, I don't get this. It looks like nothing to me. But that's because we don't know the context. If you know the context, you say, oh, oh there's a clue. If, you, if you're talking to an older British person and you want to make a point about change, you go, it's 1066 and all that. And they go, oh, yeah. You go, what? What does that mean? That's cryptic. 1066 and all that? Well, they're talking about the Norman invasion. When there was a leadership change, an abrupt leadership change in England, everything was different after 1066. Uh, it was no longer what it was. It was something entirely new. And now we've gotten used to that. So this was a game-changing uh, uh, thing. And so when we, when we read the Bible, we start to get insights into all these, not just hints, not subtle hints, but patterns, sources, narrative that undergirds the gospel of Jesus. If we don't have that, uh, we're, we're limited in what we can really understand. That's why the gospel in America has become so reduced to something so trivial. Using good words, motivated by good theology, but trivialized so that it's mocked in the culture. Oh, are you one of those born-agains? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the years with people who say, so you're a Christian. Wow, it's been a great conversation. I'm glad you're not one of those born-agains. Like, uh, well, that would be me. I am a born-again. If you're not born-again, you're not one of these Christians. And then they go, what? Yeah, it's been trivialized. Say some magic words and you'll be saved. And that's why we keep saying the gospel isn't you can be saved and here's how. The gospel is God himself in Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the promises and prophecies of Israel. And he's invited us to be part of it. You can be saved. Here's how. You see the context? It changes everything. You've, you've heard me say before, 
uh, when uh, E.M. Forster in 1946 wrote a book called Aspects of the Novel. And he's trying to get the point across that a, a novel isn't just a bunch of fancy words. It's something profound that pulls us into something that we can understand life better through. And so he gives the example. He says, the queen died. And, and that's a storyline. The queen died, and we have no response to that. Okay, whatever. It's a tidbit of information attached to nothing, non-contextual, irrelevant to me. But when you fulfill, when you finish the sentence and you give it a plot, all of a sudden we're interested. Interested in people we don't know or probably don't care about. But now we'd like to know more about. We care, we're starting to care. Because when the queen died, the king died of grief. You go, whoa, what kind of queen was she if the king died of grief? There's a plot there. And as we start to understand the plot of God's revelation to humankind, we move it from being a trivial non sequitur to this most profound understanding of this is what God has been doing. And he knows me and my name and my story and my situation. And he wants to draw me into the larger narrative that defines all human history and the very meaning of life itself. And as I try to stand apart from that and mock it and judge it, it's because nobody has given me enough um, information for me to take it seriously, so therefore I dismiss it. Have you ever found yourself in that place? For sure, I was in that place before I met Christ. It was annoying uh, as all get out to have somebody come up to you as you're getting out of the water with your surfboard and go, dude, do you know Jesus? And it would, inv it would evoke profanity, mocking. Somebody spray-painted right at Pleasure Point, Jesus surfs. And I'm thinking two things as I'm stuck in the kelp waiting for a wave. What an idiot to deface somebody's wall. And why did they put Jesus surfs? And I thought, I'm going to read the Bible so that I can be ready for these people. I'm going to read it so I can be armed and dangerous. Not that I want to fight with anybody about it, but I just want to have a sense of saying, look, man, I know what you're talking about. I'm not buying it. Who knew what I didn't know? I didn't. As a, as a you know, 16 year old kid, 17 year old kid. And so I started reading the Bible and it blew my mind because I thought, why has nobody ever told me this? And I'm drawn into the story, the plot of human history, the plot of salvation history. Apparently, the very thoughts of God spoken through people, imperfect people like me, and made my heart burn in the best possible way. And I couldn't get enough of it. I read it, and I read it, and I read it. And I, I, at lunchtime with my friends, who none of us were believers, we'd be talking about it. So pretty soon you have all these kids at this high school talking about the Bible that we didn't believe in, fascinated by it. And then a bunch of plays came out, Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, and, and we think, oh, okay, well, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a moment, I guess, in our culture. And then somebody, some adult finally said, hey, I hear you're reading the Bible, and you a bunch of kids are talking about it. He knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And I said, well, yeah. And he said, do you need any help? I said, oh, no, we got it covered. Now, we were making mincemeat out of it. We had no idea what we were reading. So if, if, if we read something like Jesus fed 5,000 people, we say, ah, he inspired them. They all took out their lunch and shared it. We kind of missed the point that the writer was making a point about God's capacity to even uh, use nature to bring the message of his love reproducing loaves of bread and fish and blessing people with enough left over to share with others. 
And so finally we said, okay, yeah, sure, we'll just, a, you know, you know how adults can be. At some point you just patronize them and you go, fine, let, you know, okay, help me. It turns out this guy had been to seminary. And who knew that his full-time job was working with Young Life? He was like an undercover spy among high school students. And he was an old dude. He was probably in his 40s. I mean, beyond anything you can imagine. And we had the most phenomenal conversations. And he said, Steve, it's more than all this knowledge you're getting. It's about a relationship with the living God. I thought, that's news to me. That's pretty good news. And so it went after that and after that and after that and after that. So this is why we want to read these things, because then we would say, oh my gosh, Exodus 2. Oh, the slaughter of the innocents. Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, doesn't know anything about the history of these Jews who've been in, in Egypt for 400 years, making the country a better place. They don't know that that first Pharaoh said, you've saved our country. We want to honor you. Take the, the best land and, and have at it and reproduce and build your families and all, you know. And, and now it's, who are you? And you're dangerous. We're scared of you. There's more of you than us. Let's just kill all the firstborn babies. All the baby boys, take them out. And so Moses' mom says, oh my gosh, he's getting too big. He started to squeak and be loud, you know. And they put him in a little basket and floated him down the river where they knew he'd be found by Pharaoh's um, servants. So Pharaoh's daughter and her servants are out there by the river. They go, whoa, a baby. Immediately, Pharaoh's daughter says, it's a Hebrew baby. She knew it was a Jewish baby. I'm telling dad right now. No, she said, take care of the baby. In fact, let's find somebody to nurse the baby. Hey, lady, you, Moses' mother. Yes? Uh, could you care for this kid? Sure, be glad to. Anything for the Pharaoh. She, she raises the little baby until the baby's old enough to, for, the, for Pharaoh's daughter to take the baby in. This baby becomes part of the household of Pharaoh. And now it's time to leave. Moses has already left abruptly early, but now God says, go back and bring these people out. So why am I telling you this? Because it's, it's a parallel to what we see with, with Herod and these children. And, and the Gospel of John, again, this is how it all comes together in a most wonderful way. You know how conspiracy theories, they put a bunch of facts together and they're ridiculous at the end of it? This is not like that. Because every new fact you get, you think, this makes more sense. This makes more sense. Uh, do you know why fire engines are red? Because a fire engine has four wheels in the front and eight in the back. Four plus eight equals 12. And it goes on from there. There's 12 inches in a ruler. Queen Elizabeth was a ruler of England. There's a ship called the Queen Elizabeth. Ships sail in the seas. <gasps> Fish swim in the seas. Fish have fins. The fins once fought a war with the Russians. The Russians are red. Fire engines are red. Fire engines are always Russian. That's why fire engines are red. <laughs> a bunch of non sequiturs, disconnected, non-contextual facts put together, and it's just another conspiracy theory approach. The Bible is not a conspiracy. It's a narrative coming out of history, rooted in geography, it's a unified literary whole. It's the word of God. It holds up to any scrutiny and criticism you can bring to it. 
How many people, every, about every 10 years, a new book is written by somebody who said, I'm an attorney, I'm a scholar, I'm a this, I'm an authority on something. I'm going to debunk this. And then the next book they, they put out says, here's why I believe in Jesus. Books like The Case for Christ, etc. I, 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 I challenge you, if you don't know Jesus, to do this. And if you do know Jesus, especially to do this. Because lots of people who believe in Jesus, have an authentic, genuine faith, do not read the Word of God. Therefore, they're completely at sea. And here's what John's gospel tells us. For the law was given through Moses. Wow, at a great cost. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, who has made him known. Gold for a king, frankincense for a high priest, myrrh for a sacrifice. That's a symbolic meaning of those three gifts. Uh, you know, there's a new market in frankincense. Frankincense is basically um, a secretion from a plant, a scrubby plant in the desert. It was a major economy. Uh, there were caravansaries, places where the travelers would gather at certain you know, uh, distances all through the Eastern world. It was massive money. Uh, what, what, bulbs, what, what tulip bulbs were to the Dutch, massive fortunes. What tech is to us, frankincense, gold, and myrrh were to the ancient world. Gold for a king, frankincense as an incense, you burn it's beautiful, and myrrh uh, to, to blend into the linen as you, as you embalm a body. So these three things celebrate and confirm Jesus' mission. He is the king, he is the high priest, he is the savior. And God's given you gifts to celebrate and confirm your mission. That confirm and celebrate your mission. You have a mission. You might say, yeah, yeah, my mission is mine. I'm deciding my mission. Fine, no, no problem. But probably you have that mission because you are wired in a way that you are particularly attracted to that. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be sad if you didn't know the God of the universe who gave you those skills and those capacities and those insights and those talents not to link your mission to his and actually see your mission go where it's supposed to go? Why do you want to minimize your mission? Why do you want such a small vision? Until your mission is, is rooted in him and linked to him, your, 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 your God is too small. Because it's defined by you and what you can do. So these gifts were given to Jesus to confirm and to celebrate his mission. And he's giving you gifts in turn to do that for you. To celebrate and confirm where you are and what he wants you to do. I can't wait to see what God's going to do, continue to do in Isaiah. And in his younger brother, who by the way is taller. I got to say, I just noticed that. He's a taller brother. Do you understand that wise men and women have been speaking to you and trying to get through to you. Maybe it was your parents, maybe it's family members and friends and coaches and mentors, work colleagues. Somebody's trying to get through to you. Are you listening? God himself is trying to get through to you. Are you listening? You have a mission. Your life will never feel like it was worth living like it is and does when you have that sense of your mission. Now, once you embrace that mission, it'll be really a pain in the rear end, I guarantee Having a mission is completely inconvenient. Why? Because you can't complete it but for God himself. And every day will remind you, I, have, I do not have what it takes to complete this mission. Why did God burden me with this? And as you see God coming in you and around you to fulfill that mission, you go, oh, wait, 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 God bless me with this. Okay. And so your curse becomes a blessing. Lord, thank you. So let me just, I'm going to read you a quick list. I can't go into it, but here's what all disciples share in common and living our lives is a gift from God and a gift for God. I'm just going to read you these things. And any of them resonate with you, great. But 
12 things, 12 days of Christmas, right? I place my life in the hands of God in order to do his will. Two, in my spiritual development, I seek counsel in knowing, enjoying, and serving God. Three, I use my time, talent, and treasure to honor God and bless people. Four, I study the Bible and partner with others to know God's will. Five, I understand God is calling me to join him in his work in the world. Six, my family, work, personal growth, and the world's need is part of my calling from God. Seven, my mentors and friends are part of my calling from God. Eight, I depend on God's grace to fulfill his purposes. Nine, by God's grace, I open my heart to care for others. Ten, I can endure trials and temptations by abiding in Christ. Eleven, by God's grace, I live by faith rather than by fear. And twelve, all I have is a gift from God, so I share it generously. Let me wrap up by saying this. All this is, is wrapped up in the phrase Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas is sort of a one-off. I'm sorry, Happy Holidays, back off. But Merry Christmas is, is a very packed phrase that we've, we've turned it into high, you know, high. But Merry Christmas is powerful. What, what is Merry all about? It's about sustained gladness and joy. Making merry isn't getting inebriated, getting high, getting distracted. It's about feeling this intense sense of joy and gladness despite the circumstances. My buddy who dressed as Santa last week at San Quentin encountered a bunch of guys who are merry. Some are lifelong inhabitants of San Quentin. But by the power of God, they have a deep sense of joy and gladness for who they are in Christ. That, that, I, can't, I can't get my head around that. It's true. And there's other people that have that same sense of intense gladness and joy, and they know they're going to get out, and they know what they're going to do now rather than what they were first going to do when they got out. The first part on their list when they were first in prison was, I'm going to kill all the people who got me here. Now the first thing on their list is, I want to bless people in Jesus' name. They're not religious. They're alive, alive in Christ. So Mary, sustained gladness and joy. Christmas, two words. Christos, the anointed one. Same word as Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew version, anointed by oil. Christos is the Greek version, anointed by oil. It's in the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Christos. And Missa, it's a celebration of the Eucharist. The Eucharist, Eucharist just means thank you. If you're Greek and you're walking down the street today, you see somebody, you want to say thank you, you say, instead of Eucharisto, they change it now, it's Eucharisto. Eucharisto. You want to say, thank you very much. You go, poli. thank you so much. The Eucharist, we think of it as a fancy, mysterious term. It simply means thank you. And so what is a mass? If you grew up in the Catholic Church, a mass is simply recognizing with a grateful heart the gift of God. And it all, it all comes from Christ. And so the early church said, ah, this is the mass of Christ, the Eucharist, the Eucharisto, the good news of the anointed one. You with me on this? So when you say Merry Christmas, you're saying a lot. You're saying a lot. And so we recognize and we receive and remember the wonderful gifts God has given us through Jesus. And all the traditions, as sometimes trivial and silly as they are, they, they count only because they remind us and point us back to the baby in the manger and all the promises that got that baby there. And so when your life is, a, is in the service of God and at the service of God, your life is a joyful gift of gratitude.
Your life is a joyful gift of gratitude. I hope that's what you're feeling in this season of Advent. If not, don't feel shame. Just feel like, oh, I need to realign. I need to realign with my purpose and my mission from the one who created me for it. And let this Advent season, as we go into the last week of Advent, really, the, you know, the Advent continues beyond Christmas Day, but if you think about it, a week from now, it's Christmas. We'll be back here for Christmas Eve on Christmas Day. I mean, on, on the 24th. So really, Sunday is Christmas Eve. Monday is going to be Christmas. So a week from now, you have a whole week then to realign. I'd say read through Matthew 1 and 2 and through Luke 1 and 2, the Christmas story. And anytime you see a reference to some prophecy, stop us for a second and look it up. See where it takes you. Lord Jesus, I, I know that you want to take us in places, two places we never thought we could go or want to go. I thank you, Lord, that, but for you, we can't go to the places that pro provide the greatest gladness and joy. And even the things that we do that don't seem directly connected to you, we have that gladness and joy because all these things are gifts from you. All these ordinary, everyday things that we so easily take for granted are gifts of your grace and your love. So, Lord, I, I thank you uh, for this message you've revealed to us in your word, to faithful people being patient with us until we find we're willing to listen and understand and receive you. I pray for each one here, those who know you and are discouraged, Lord, you'd, con you'd comfort them and perhaps gently confront them through your word. For those who don't know you, you'd provoke them out of anger or curiosity to want to know what's in your word. For those who are embracing your word as the word of God, I pray, Lord, you'd give them wisdom and discernment as they uh, apply it creatively, wisely, every day. For all these things, we give you honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is our time of offering. Uh, this is not the offering of money. Please make an offering at year-end. will help us finish strong so we can make this great transition with Grave City. But this is an offering of you. So wherever you are, offer yourself to the Lord. Don't reach for money. Reach into your heart. Reach into your mind. Look at your hands and say, Lord, here's what I'm offering to you as we wrap up worship together. your baby boy would one day walk on water. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered would soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to the blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels try? When you kiss your little 
for you about anything that concerns you, or for yourself or for anybody else, go right around the corner outside to there's a beautiful garden in the front. It's our prayer garden. Uh, there'll be people there who will say, how, how, can I, how can I pray for you? And if you can tell them, great. If you can't, just say, pray for me. They'll pray for you. It's like a spa treatment spiritually. So it's not like an odd, weird thing. All the losers go over. No, it's all the people who are going, I care about people. I'm going to get somebody to pray with me for these people. Uh, go over there. I love it when people pray for me. I hope you love it when people pray for you. I hope you love praying for people as well. If you're hungry, thirsty, go out and have some coffee, some refreshments. Uh, say hello to the people around you. Again, say hello to people you think you should know their name by now and you, for the life of you don't know it. And uh, if they say we're related, you go, I'm sorry again. Uh, just, you know, too many names. And, and if we can do anything to help you as you go into the next season of your life, we're moving into a new, new transition, a new season as a church. Uh, we're passing the baton to Grace City. Uh, but the best thing I can say to help you in that is jump in, dive in. God's going to continue his work, and he's going to do it in you and through you uh, in the company of other people. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you could ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. See you on Christmas Eve next Sunday.